Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. This audio archive that you'll be listening to features the extraordinary Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow. Please listen in to this telecouncil from September 5th, 2012, and also check out dopeace.us for the entire listing for this series and other audio archives ongoing. Join us in the near future. This is a weekly series. We look forward to staying in touch with you and hearing about your work on the ground as the justice conversation continues to heighten in the United States and beyond. Thank you and enjoy. And I am thrilled to announce the kickoff of the 2012-13 Restorative Justice on the Rise Telecouncil Series. Wonderful to be with you all this morning. I know it's early for many of you, but we do have a very special guest today. And I just want to give you a little bit of background on where we've been up to now. As many of you know, uh, in the past year, we've had this telecouncil series as a platform for discussion around restorative justice, as well as social healing in the United States and beyond. And recently, the Peace Alliance and I have partnered to bring this further out into the world as a council platform for truth, for dialogue, for connection, and furthermore, for the building of a resource library and a connection point for people worldwide. We know that in the United States, restorative justice is moving quickly. Uh, there's so much happening on the ground in many cities all over the country. People are doing amazing work. And the mission of, of this particular series is to bring us together to find out more about what people are doing. Working models are coming together and sharing those working models for providing a bridge between the existing system and a system that we know that could provide uh, an incredible solution to today's existing prison industrial complex. Today's guest is an incredible voice for justice and it's an, it's an extraordinary honor to be welcoming Michelle Alexander to join us here in just a moment. We're going to be introducing her She's going to be sharing about the new Jim Crow, which just recently came out with a foreword from Cornell West. And um, before I go into a little bit more about Michelle, many of you probably know about her, but uh, I'd like to just say a few words about the, the um, platform that we're in today. This is a virtual room, basically, and if you have questions at particular points throughout the call, you'll want to press 1 on your telephone keypad. That's just pressing 1 on your phone at the times when we break into live Q&A today. That will be about halfway through the call and then towards the end. Um, this call will also be recorded and archived at the Peace Alliance Do Peace website. And I just want to thank Matthew Albrecht and Hart Phoenix for being here with us today. Uh, Matthew is the Executive Director of the Peace Alliance. Hart Phoenix is the President of the Board. She's also uh, the co-founder of the River Phoenix Center for Peace Building. As many of you know, her son River Phoenix was uh, a world-famous actor who devoted his life to social justice and change. 
So without further ado, uh, we have a lot to cover today with Michelle Alexander, as many of you already probably know much about her, but I just would like to honor her by sharing her biographical sketch. She's a highly acclaimed civil rights lawyer, advocate, and legal scholar. As an associate professor of law at Stanford Law School, Michelle directed the Civil Rights Clinic and pursued a research agenda focused on the intersection of race and criminal justice. In 2005, Alexander won a Soros Justice Fellowship that supported the writing of the new Jim Crow and accepted a joint appointment at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at the Moritz College of Law at The Ohio State University, where she currently serves as an associate professor of law. Prior to joining academia, Alexander engaged in civil rights litigation in both the private and nonprofit sector, ultimately serving as the director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU of Nor Northern California, where she helped to launch a national campaign against racial profiling. Currently, she devotes much of her time to freelance writing, public speaking, supporting groups and organizations engaged in movement building to end mass incarceration, and caring for her three young children. She's a graduate of the Stanford Law School and Vanderbilt University. She has clerked for Justice Henry A. Blackman on the U.S. Supreme Court and for Chief Judge Abner Mikva on the D.C. Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals. She's been all over worldwide media, and to me, personally, I believe she's one of the most powerful voices in the world today towards illuminating the predict predicament of the prison industrial complex. So, Michelle, it's a great honor to welcome you here with us today to this global telecouncil hosted by the Peace Alliance. Welcome, and I just want to ask you if you might um, start out today's call by sharing a little bit of your life work and inspiration and perhaps some special motivation you've had for, for what you've brought forward in such a big way to this world. Well, Welcome, thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want to share my appreciation for the very warm welcome and for the opportunity to participate in this dialogue. Um, the work of this group and this network is so profoundly important, and I'm just thrilled to have this opportunity to um, join the conversation with you. Um, I have been uh, deeply interested in problems uh, relating to our justice system for really as long as I can remember. Um, I think you know one of my earliest memories <laughs> um, as a young person is of watching a documentary. I think I was in maybe junior high school. I don't think I was still in elementary school at that time watching a documentary about one of the um, first women um, that was executed in the United States. And in the documentary, and I wish I knew the title of it, um, in the documentary it talked about how there were all of these doubts about her innocence um, up to the time of her execution and um, that the courts would not halt her execution despite all of this evidence that turned up showing that she may well have been innocent, and also despite the fact that the family of the victim um, did not want her 
to be killed, and she was executed anyway. And I remember, you know, just as a young person, just being so horrified um, that, you know, we as a nation would kill someone when we weren't even sure of their guilt and when the victim's family <laughs> didn't even necessarily want to see her dead and had questions about her about her guilt. And, um, you know, I was so shaken by it. It really caused me to want to learn more about our justice system and how it operated and um, you know, that interest continued when I was in college and, you know, sent me on to law school. Um, as time went on, um, I became more and more interested in the intersection between racial injustice and criminal injustice in our society. Um, and by the time I graduated from law school, I was considering becoming a public defender and actually interned at the DC Public Defender Service and you know had just a phenomenal experience there you know public defenders are you know among the most heroic folks <laughs> in my view um but realized you know that I didn't know whether I could withstand um being in such close proximity to so much suffering on a daily basis that you know, I would go home at night having lost another case or hugged, you know, a client goodbye on their way to years or decades in prison and witnessing the scenes and the tears in the courtroom. And I thought, I don't know that I can do this day in and day out. I want to change this system. <laughs> I don't want to just help people one by one, although I saw the critical importance of those who are playing that role, the sheer necessity of that, I wanted to figure out how to change the system as a whole um, so that there would be less needless suffering, the system would be more fair. Um, and really, you know, I took a meandering course. <laughs> um, you know, I worked as a civil rights lawyer for a small firm doing mainly employment discrimination work for a while. I um, dabbled in criminal justice reform work, but it wasn't until I got to the ACLU and directed the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU that I really had the opportunity um, to do what I had dreamed of um, when interning in that public defender office, which is begin to really think about what it would mean to change the system as a whole and what aspects of that system needed to change. Um, but it wasn't long into that work that I realized that even I, someone who cared a lot about racial injustice and thought that I knew a lot about our criminal justice system, that I uh, was deeply misguided and in a lot of denial um, about the way in which our criminal justice system wasn't just in need of reform, um, but had become um, the primary vehicle for creating and sustaining racial inequality in our time. Mm. And, uh, you know, I really had grown up <laughs> on the idea that our nation was evolving. Um, you know, we were making halted progress, halting progress towards the dream of racial equality, you know, the promised land of colorblindness. But I really believe that we were more or less on the right path and that if we kind of just kept plodding along and kept trying to equalize educational opportunities and 
hold on to affirmative action and do what we could to defend um, the powerless um, that found themselves in the clutches of the criminal justice, that that would be enough, that that was what was required of us in this time. But a series of experiences that I had while working at the ACLU and representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color and attempting to assist people who had been released from prison, you know, supposedly re-enter into a society that had never shown much use for them in the first place, I had a series of experiences that began what I now often call my awakening. You know, I began to awaken to the reality that our criminal justice system functions much more like a system of racial control than a system of crime prevention or control. And that's what brought me to where I am today and in writing the book and trying to work with others who aren't simply trying to reform the system, um, but transform it, um, dismantle it, and build something anew. So you, you really highlight something very important, too, with your own experience, which is um, the fact that uh, it, it may be true that we've been led on to believe something that's not really the case, um, that lip service perhaps is being paid to, um, you know, to the best of all intentions probably within most of uh, Americans' hearts around our true equality. Um, but that that there is something something going on in the underbelly that uh, you, in fact, with the new Jim Crow, are helping to illuminate. That that there is actually a cultural lie that that has that has happened, and your experiences actually um, seem to be so powerfully outlined too in the in the new Jim Crow. I've been looking through it and feeling very inspired by what you bring forward here. And um, so could you speak a little bit more to that that piece of, you know, what what are we looking at here as a collective culture around, um, you know, the truth of what's happening and uh, what we've been told or what the hope movement, you know, the, 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 the things that have been represented to us that probably appeal again to our hearts and to our, our best of intentions but aren't actually true. Yes. Well, you know, I was watching um, the opening of, you know, the Democratic Convention last night, and, you know, I was really struck by the narratives, kind of the stories that were told. Um, you know, you had um, people of all races and ethnicities on the stage telling their stories of how America is the place um, where no matter how poor you are or how much you and your family struggle, America is the place where you can reach for your dreams and if you work hard, <laughs> keep your nose to the grindstone, you can make it. Um, that was the, the story that was told over and over again and kind of the way in which the Democratic narrative differs from the Republican narrative is that the Democrats say the American dream is real and you can make it, but we need to help each other a little not much, a little along the way. And the Republican narrative is the American dream is real and you can get there on your own. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, what I've come to see and to understand better 
in recent years is that the American dream is just not real <laughs> for millions of Americans, and it's not a matter of not trying, <laughs> but it's actually right. a matter of being born into circumstances in which you are locked into what, in my view, is an inferior caste-like status. Um, you know, you're born into a neighborhood, a community, you know, often a ghettoized community, um, and where there, you know, are no grocery stores, um, where there are no schools that provide meaningful educational opportunities, where you are followed by the police, stopped, frisked, searched at very young ages, your car is pulled over, if you're lucky enough to have a car and you're old enough to drive, searched for drugs, you're targeted at very young ages, often before you're even old enough to vote, swept in to our criminal justice system, then branded a criminal or felon, and then stripped of the basic civil and human rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, the right to be free of legal discrimination and employment, housing, access to education, and public benefits, so many of the old forms of discrimination that we supposedly left behind during the Jim Crow era are suddenly legal again once you've been branded a felon. That's why I say we haven't you know, ended racial caste in America. We've merely redesigned it, um, you know, partly through intentionally divisive racial politics that have exploited our nation's racial divisions and anxieties for political gain, you know, manifesting, you know, through the get tough movement and the war on drugs. Um, this system has been born. But this system, in my view, is also born of our collective unconscious. Um, you know, we now, you know, say we're colorblind. We now say that we care about people of all races and colors, but buried deep in our collective unconscious are still these stereotypes and anxieties and fears and resentments that have been unresolved and which manifest themselves in um, harsh mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses, the tolerance of police tactics and practices that would never be permissible in middle class white communities or on college campuses. All of this seems normal and rational, not because we consciously hate black and brown people and want harm to come to them, but because it seems natural that we'd be treating them that way even though it wouldn't be tolerated on the other side of town. And the end result is, you know, the quintupling of our prison population in a short period of time and this vast new racial undercaste that is literally locked into a permanent second-class status by law. Um, you know, folks for whom this American dream that you see on television um, is just, you know, a distant fantasy. Well, I'd, I'd really appreciate the way you um, highlight, too, and you bring important facts that probably most Americans who have not been affected by maybe a family member or uh, a friend or, you know, some somehow understand a little bit more about what goes on behind the curtain of the prison industrial complex and how people, um, for example, you, you speak about... Um, there is really nothing that that is provided as a bridge uh, between, you know, someone who's released or pr paroled or who's who tops out and comes out of the system. It's basically like leaving someone on the curb. 
but it only that's only the beginning as you highlight um you know that that there's a stigmatization that happens uh usually for life that um involves everything that you've just covered with uh everything from job applications to housing to employment and so on and so forth and i just i find it very important um that the new jim crow really brings these things to light uh, because a lot of us really don't know what what's going on behind the curtain, um, as far as as what's actually happening, and I you know I'd like to go back for a moment too um, to the framework that you set in the beginning of the book. You have a have something that really opened my eyes, and I happen to have a family member who's incarcerated. Um, and so, to me, it was a bit of a surprise to learn, um, as you introduce and kind of set the tone for the new Jim Crow, you speak about a movement um, in the 70s mm-hmm. that was uh, a movement to abolish prisons. And you talk about uh, how there was uh, what seemed to be a collective understanding that prisons were actually reciprocating uh, crime and that were creating crime even. Um, and I wondered if you might speak a little bit about that. Yes, you know, it's, 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 it was fascinating to me too um, to learn that, you know, through my own work and research that, you know, there was a time when it was kind of the mainstream consensus among criminologists um, that prisons caused more crime <laughs> than they deterred, um, and that prisons um, ought to fade away, that they had failed in their you know, mission of making our society more safe or more secure, that they uh, were not rehabilitative, and that really the best way to turn a misguided young person who has made a few mistakes uh, into a hardened and perhaps dangerous criminal is to send them to prison, to lock them in a cage, treat them like an animal, and surround them um, only by other people who are um, struggling in similar ways and who may be far worse off. Um, and you know that an entirely different approach um, to punishment um, had to be devised because prisons were such an abysmal failure. Um, in fact, you know, the National Commission um, kind of studying um, the issue recommended that no more new prisons be built and that existing institutions for juveniles be closed because they were uh, such, you know, an abysmal failure. Um, you know, at that time, no one absolutely no one, and this is in the 70s, you know, no one could have imagined that within their lifetimes our prison population would quintuple, not double or triple, but quintuple, and that the quintupling of our prison population wouldn't be driven by crime or crime rates, but it would be driven by this backlash uh, against the civil rights movement and this get-tough movement that was, you know, really more about um, playing to the fears and anxieties of poor and working class whites in the wake of the civil rights movement. But that, in fact, is what happened. <laughs> uh, within a blink of an eye, we didn't end prisons. Um, we created a prison state um, and a vast 
um, new penal system really unprecedented in world history. And, and I'd like to just share with everyone, um, by the way, welcome to those of you joining us a little late here. I'm interviewing Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow. You can find out more about The New Jim Crow at thenewjimcrow.org. It's .org, right, Michelle? Yes. Oh, sure. newjimcrow.com. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's excuse .com. Me, newjimcrow.com. And she's also on Facebook as Michelle Alexander Author. I highly encourage, if you haven't been to her website, to check it out and, of course, to buy the book. It's a New York Times bestseller. has a new foreword by Cornell West. So back to uh, just wanting to share with um, everyone from the book. You say, the growing consensus among experts was perhaps best reflected by the National Advisory Commission on Cr Criminal Justice Standards and Goals, which issued a recommendation in 1973 that no new institutions for adults should be built and existing institutions for juveniles should be closed. This recommendation was based on their finding that the prison, the reformatory, and the jail have achieved only a shocking record of failure. There is overwhelming evidence that these institutions create crime rather than prevent it. Now that's on page eight. You've set the framework here in your introduction. And what, what, what you're frameworking, it feels to me, is um, what, what leads us to now is uh, perhaps not only the, the social control, but also, you know, what's happening with, with the prison industrial complex as far as um, greed and, and how uh, corporations like corporations, Correctional Corporations of America and uh, the GEO Group, what, what, what's their role here and what, how does it play into um, the support of, of this social control movement that we're, we're now waking up to collectively, it seems? Yes, well, you know, it is undeniable that um, a lot of money is being made off of mass incarceration today. Um, you know, the private prison companies that are now listed on the New York Stock Exchange and are doing quite well, even during a time of economic recession, um, and a whole host of other private interests that are less obvious. Um, for example, phone companies that typically gouge um, prisoners and their families um, who are trying to remain connected and to speak each other, to speak to each other, um, and you know, children who are trying to remain in con connection with their their parents, their loved ones behind bars. Um, phone companies are profiting by gouging them, charging them exorbitant rates to place calls. Um, you have private health care providers um, that you know secure extremely lucrative. Um, contracts to provide typically abysmal health care to people behind bars, taser gun manufacturers. You have construction companies that have done extremely well building prisons and specializing and, you know, um, outfitting the most high-tech prisons um, with technology and equipment. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, prison guard unions, particularly in places like California, um, that are deeply invested um, in in the building and maintenance of prisons, and these folks lobby not just for you know higher wages or better working conditions, but also harsh mandatory minimums and three strikes laws. As you know, those laws represent job security. So you know there are a whole host of interests that now benefit from mass incarceration, and there's actually a great book that I highly recommend called Prison Profiteers. 
who makes money off of mass incarceration um, that really outlines um, you know um, how people are making money off of this system. But I think it's critically important for folks to keep in mind that this system of mass incarceration wasn't born of a profit motive. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, not, that's not its origin. Um, you know, the, the profiteering makes it more difficult to dismantle, <laughs> makes it more entrenched. Um, but it wasn't born of a profit motive. It was born of a, you know, a deliberate effort um, by politicians um, to launch a get-tough movement um, that would exploit our nation's racial divisions for political gain. I mean, numerous historians and political scientists have now documented that the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement was part of a grand Republican Party strategy known as the Southern Strategy of using racially coded Get Tough rhetoric on issues of crime and welfare to appeal to poor and working class whites, particularly in the South, who were anxious about, resentful of, fearful of many of the gains of African Americans in the civil rights movement. And pollsters and political strategists found that get tough rhetoric on these issues of crime and welfare just be enormously successful in persuading poor and working class whites to defect from the Democratic New Deal coalition and join the Republican Party in droves. Um, in the words of H.R. Haldeman, President Richard Nixon's former chief of staff, you know, he described the strategy as, quote, you know, the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this without appearing to, end quote. Um, and you know, soon the success of these strategies, of this get-tough rhetoric, um, was, was so you know, amazing to you know, political observers that Democrats could not resist the temptation to jump on the bandwagon. And um, Democrats began adopting this get-tough rhetoric on issues of crime and welfare in order to prove they could be even tougher on them um, than the Republican counterparts and try to win back those so-called white swing voters, the folks who had defected from the Democratic Party, uh, in the wake of the civil rights movement. And so it was President Bill Clinton um, you know, who escalated the drug war far beyond what Reagan and his predecessors had done. And it was President Bill Clinton who um, championed the laws banning drug offenders um, and people with criminal records from public housing, um, banning drug offenders even from food stamps um, following their release um, from federal prison, um, banning drug offenders even from federal financial aid for, for schooling upon, you know, um, their completion of their sentence. Um, you know, to a large extent, it was a Democratic administration um, desperate to win back those white swing voters um, that had defected from the Democratic Party that is responsible um, for um, the creation um, of this system that now operates to lock people into a permanent second-class status. I just want to take a moment. Um, I, I know I welcomed you and honored you and your work earlier, but I am just um, in awe of your mind and of how you bring through um, all these facts. And uh, I mean, you just are a brilliant voice. For, for this very important subject. And I, I just want to thank you so much for, for being with us. And I want to just, since we're at the top of the hour, 
I'd like to invite people who are live with us. Uh, again, this being an international telecouncil, we have callers from all over the world today. And invite you to press 1 on your keypad if you'd like to make a comment or ask Michelle a question. You can do that now. We'll take a couple questions, and then I'll go ahead and um, we'll go back into a little dialogue with Michelle for the remainder of today's time together. We close at uh, the bottom of the hour, meaning we close at uh, the 30-minute mark. So um, I'd also like to, to just say uh, a very warm welcome. We have someone on the call today with us from uh, who was instrumental in putting together the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights um, and uh, also her partner who she works with on Growing a Global Heart. That's Belvie Rooks and Deedon Gills. And Belvie is a dear friend and colleague of mine. And I just want to welcome you, Belvie, live onto the call and honor your work uh, with Ella Baker and with Growing a Global Heart. And um, if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, welcome. Thank you, Molly. Actually, when you met me, I was board chair of the Ella Baker Center and, and a member of the board and joined um, actually um, at Van Jones's request to help as a board person to help move the organization toward a greater focus on, on uh, sustainability and green jobs, uh, but that the organization you know, and the incredible work done predated my, my board and uh, involvement. I just real, I want to say just thank you so much for um, your work, um, Michelle. Uh, just with the deepest respect, and I am always really so happy about the way in which you frame the kind of historical context and way in which race uh, is used to both demonize and divide and. I am particularly um, always um, happy, you know, appreciative of the way in which you talk about how some of the most draconian um, policies, as it relates to uh, criminal, you know, to crime and and and, the, and welfare, came about under um, you know a Democratic administration and Bill Clinton, and particularly because it was at that point that I became a registered independent um, because of the draconian nature of some of those policies. Um, and um, I just really um, wanted to ask you, and particularly in the context of you know, what's happening currently in the country, um, how do you see uh, us taking a, a more independent stand around these issues, and what would that look like, uh, independent of the two political parties? Well, that's an excellent question, and thank you so much. Thank you both for your your kind words, words of support. Um, you know, I think that is really the key question <laughs> for us as advocates: is you know, how do we carve out an independent moral voice of authority, um, you know, given this two-party system that, you know, um, really does not 
place the interests of poor people generally and poor folks of color particularly um, anywhere on their agenda. Um, you know, how do we carve out space um, for that conversation and um, develop you know, a really credible, independent, powerful voice? Um, and you know, my own view, and I know many may disagree, and you know, my views are always in <laughs> a state of evolution, so I'm eager to have dialogue um, about this. But my own view is that um, our greatest hope lies outside of the two-party system and working with the Democratic Party. Um, that's not to say that we don't try to influence those in positions of power in either party. Of course we must. Um, but rather than you know, viewing as a primary strategy, trying to build relationships with existing political officials and kind of learn how to work the system, so to speak, um, that we really have to organize in a way that will challenge both parties and um, the political system as it exists rather than simply trying to get better at working within it. And that means organizing at a grassroots level, um, organizing faith communities, organizing formerly incarcerated people, organizing the families of those directly impacted who have loved ones behind bars, supporting the efforts of prisoners um, to organize themselves. As we've seen in recent years, prisoners have been organizing hunger strikes and um, you know, holding consciousness raising efforts behind bars and really doing a lot of important work behind bars that scarcely gets noticed by anyone on the outside. Um, finding ways to support that work, supporting the work of young people um, and allies so that um, a growing network emerges um, of folks that are not tied to any political party um, but are speaking in an organized, clear fashion, um, you know, demanding an end um, to the system of mass incarceration, calling for an end to the war on drugs, calling for an end to our overly punitive approach. Um, to dealing with problems associated with poverty um, or drug addiction, et cetera, um, but also with a clear voice articulating what we're, we're for. Um, and that, in my view, means shifting away from a civil rights framework um, towards a human rights framework, um, adopting not just the language of human rights, but um, helping to educate folks that, um, you know, you really do have a right to work. You really do have a right to quality education, no matter who you are or what you have done. That that's a basic human right that must be honored. And um, we can organize um, in our individual communities and then connect with each other on a national level in a way that will pose a challenge to the Democratic and Republican parties, a challenge that they can't ignore. One of my concerns is that right now there doesn't seem to exist a national network um, of organizations um, that is well coordinated enough. I don't want to even say well funded because I've grown tired of begging foundations for the funding necessary <laughs> to do this work and want us to find ways to do it with or without the funding. Um, but to develop a national network of people at a grassroots level that share information, ideas, coordinate strategies in a way that some kind of collective 
um, power can emerge on a national level and not just at a local level. But it does, I think, have to begin local and then move to a regional and national level. I hope that helps to answer your question. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Belvie, for for your question. And um, I just uh, I love how Michelle, you you know, you're outlining something that seems to be a common theme. I had the honor this summer to host a justice series during what was called the Summer of Peace, and had a conversation with Arun Gandhi, Gandhi's grandson, and Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles, and quite a few other people who are really on the ground doing incredible work, like Demaria Perry in Los Angeles. And um, one of the common themes uh, just that is recurring is that on-the-ground, grassroots uh, work that, that we're doing. And I completely agree with you that a national network um, connecting us is, uh, I think it's birthing right now, actually. I'm going to be bold and, and just Ooh. say that. <laughs> um, I think that that's also a part of what the vision of the Peace Alliance has in store is that we would like to help be a part of that creation. So um, anyway, Belvi, thank you I do you think so that's so critically important because there's so many wonderful people doing amazing work right. but not necessarily exactly. con connected to or feeling part of a larger movement and um, finding a way to connect all of those bright lights I think will, would be really useful. Right, and you do you you outline in the in uh, on your website actually you've got some great resources there at the new and you speak to a lot of powerful work happening. Um, so I again encourage people to visit the new I'd like to take another question uh, or comment from our council. Uh, Dick, welcome. You're live. Hi. Is this? Uh, uh, am I online? You're you're live. We can hear you. Welcome. Okay, um, Michelle. I don't know if you remember me, but uh, I was a close friend of your father's for many many years. What Come is your name? Back in Stalde. Dick Leary. Oh, Dick. Yes, I do remember you. Yes, very good. To oh, hear wonderful. You. I just want to make a comment that uh, how proud I know your father would be at the work that you do, and that the discussions we had when he was when we were able to be together carried on to the work that you have uh, taken on and are so instrumental in helping. So I'd love to be able to get in touch with your mom, and I just wanted to say how proud I am too of what you're doing and what you've accomplished in your life. Well, thank you so so much, Dick. My you know, as you know, my father passed away quite a long time ago, but it was definitely his uh determination to get to the truth <laughs> of the matter um about all things that really um helped to to inspire me on this path. So it's so good to hear your voice and connect with you and I'm happy to give you my mom's info and I know she'd love to talk with you. And Thank Dick, you. I, I'm happy to connect you as well since I have your contact information. So we'll do that offline. Wonderful. And, um, and you know, there is a beautiful, just very short, but such a deeply heartfelt um, piece about your father in your introduction um, and acknowledgments, that is. And uh, 
really um, the spirit of those who inspire us, we carry with us, and we thank the, the people who have come before us, whether it's our parents or, or those who have done this work. And you, you speak to that in the closing of the book um, very powerfully in, in quoting um, something from, um, uh, let's see, it was, what, what is the author's name again? Oh, James Michelle. Baldwin? Yes, the James Baldwin piece. So we'll, oh, we'll, yes. get, we'll, we'll get to that um, here shortly, but I'd like to take one more question. And Dick, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Um, let's see here. Go ahead, Councilwoman Lisa Robbins, Spiderwoman. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Can you all hear me? Live. Go ahead. Yes. You're, you're live. Go ahead and welcome. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you. I just first of all would like to say, Ms. Alexander, thank you so much for uh, eloquently speaking to my heart. And I'm sorry. It's a little bit emotional for me right now. Um I didn't even think I would cry. <laughs> I am okay. someone who uh, was put in the system at the age of 12, and I am now 47. And all of this, what you're speaking of, rings so true as to the scarring of the people that are placed into the systems. Um, I just recently have broken free of all the systemic failings that have followed me all of my life. And no matter how hard I tried, it seemed that I couldn't get away from it. And a lot of people wonder what's going on in our world. And a lot of that has to do with, just as you're speaking of, people are you know, brought into a world without choice into this system, the caste system that you're speaking of. And it seems that only the elite have opportunities. And so many people struggle with a feeling of inferiority and crush dreams that they're never even allowed to start dreaming or working toward. And so they become sick. They become mentally ill and seek relief in ways that some do not understand. And um, I just think that what you're doing and where you're coming from is um, divinely, whew, divinely be, is being led in a divine way and... Um, it feels good to know that there are people out here who are looking beyond our labels um, that have been placed on us, you know, as people of color or as ex-offenders or, or menaces in society. And I think it is when our own brothers and sisters start standing up for us and believing in us rather than 
promoting additional victimization by the systems that are created to, in fact, correct or rehabilitate us, as you know, as the words that are used when you're placed in those systems. Um, I think when people start showing compassion, and, 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 and it is happening, I do agree that I think um, things are taking a different course. And I really thank you for the way in which you have formatted it today so that I understand that it is about politics. I never really understood that until I just listened to you. And it makes perfect sense. It's actually become, like you said, a lucrative business. And it's unfortunate that so many people are um, being affected, not just the offenders, but their families and the little children that are involved when their parents are gone. And it perpetuates that cycle. Um, I'm just very humbled to... uh, have been invited to this forum and um thank you so much for for being with us council mm. yes you for sharing you your experience and um you know i just i have to say i think it's i'm i'm so grateful that you were willing to share on a personal level and share as share your emotion as well because you're absolutely right that there is so much emotional harm and suffering, needless, just needless emotional harm um, that has been done by this system. And as much as we, you know, advocates (laughs) like myself (laughs) want to talk about changing policy and repealing our drug laws or this or that, that on a very human level there's a lot of healing that has to be done. Um, And I think that you're absolutely right that people who may not have been scarred by the system have been lucky enough to escape its grasp yeah. have to be uh, willing um, to stand up and stand with um, those who have and to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand with you. Um, and unfortunately, the nature of this system is to make people feel ashamed yes. um, of their past and to feel as though they have to hide um, or deny it or escape it in some way. And um, for those who have not been caught by the system, to want to distance themselves from those who have. And you know that, I think, is a central challenge for our movement building, which is you know, how can we heal these divisions within our own communities, our own families, um, so that we can stand with those um, who um, have suffered um, in this system, stand with them and, and support them in, in meaningful ways. Um, while you were speaking, I was reminded of this quote um, by Howard Thurman, who's an African-American um, Christian mystic who died many years ago, but he was a powerful voice during the Civil Rights Movement. And um, I have his 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 this quote right here with me which I just love and which um, I think speaks to exactly what you shared he said quote there are few things more devastating than ha- than to have it burned into you that you do not count and that no provisions are made for the literal protection of your person 
In this world, the socially disadvantaged is constantly given a negative answer to the most important personal questions upon which mental health depends. Who am I? What am I? What is to become of me? Above all else in our society, the disinherited is made to feel that they have no stake in a social order. They must be made to feel that they are alien, that it is a great boon to be allowed to remain alive, not to be exterminated, end quote. And I think for so many people um, who have been trapped and labeled and branded and shamed, um, you know, they have it burned into them (laughs) that they do not count and that no provisions have been made for them. And um, so thank you for for sharing um, in the way that you did. Thank you very much. Um, Would it be at all possible also to be connected with you at a later time? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to be in touch. It's interesting because I was just thinking that too. Uh, There's so many aspects of this council given the linear timing that we have together, which is is almost running out here, and um, that maybe someday you might consider coming back with us again, Michelle. um, Oh, I would love to. Or at least staying in touch with us. Um, And one of the things that I'd like to propose, too, is that the conversation and questions might continue because there's so many people that have raised their hands today, and I know that I'm not going to be able to get to all of you, and I apologize for that. Um, But do hold your question and bring it to the forum at Do Peace, uh, which is the Peace Alliance's social network where the Restorative Justice on the Rise series is posted. You just go to dopeace.us and then uh, click on the Restorative Justice tab. Um, before going back around to answer, to um, open up the call to a few more questions, Michelle, I, I'd like to ask you your thoughts, given that we're moving in the direction of talking about where we are now and um, maybe what, what we might do moving forward. What are your thoughts on on this grassroots movement that is rising uh, of restorative justice, and does it is it going to go deep enough? Do you think, um, or or is it a pipe dream? Is it something that that we um, that might answer to that need of the division between um, people who are are castigated from society um, because of this system and because of shame and uh, or, or will it provide the part, part or all of the solution, perhaps, um, of our deep need to be heard, our deep need to be seen, our deep need to dialogue about the wounds that, that we've, we have been passed down to us, but that we've co-created together? Yes, well, it is definitely not a pipe dream, and um, I'm so encouraged <laughs> Um, by the movement that is growing around restorative justice, transformative justice. I'm very encouraged by it. And, um, you know, I think that one of the reasons why it's such a crucial part of the work to end mass incarceration um, and to break this cycle of caste-like systems in America is because it helps to provide an answer to, well, if we don't have prisons, if prisons aren't the answer, then what? What are we going to do <laughs> about 
these people or that harm or this tragedy. And, um, you know, I think that there is kind of real harm that has to be acknowledged and addressed. Um, People do um, violate each other's rights, commit real crimes against each other that cause pain and suffering in our communities. You take a city like Chicago, for example, which has been ground zero in the drug war. I mean, if there was ever a case study of all that is wrong with the drug war and how it is far more likely to you know, create crime and violence by incarcerating huge segments of community. You know, Chicago is it. You know, in Chicago, nearly 80% of working-age African-American men now have criminal records. You know, in the state of Illinois, about 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been African-American, even though they're not any more likely to use or sell drugs. You have entirely neighborhoods that have been laid waste by mass incarceration and the drug war, and violence is spiraling out of control in many of these communities. And people say, well, what do we do about people who are causing harm in our communities? If, if prison isn't the answer, then what? And restorative justice, I think, begins to point the way um, towards how we might be able um, to deal with crime and harm that is caused um, between members of a community, within communities, without resorting to putting people in a cage. Um, And that, I think, is absolutely necessary. When people talk about a world without prisons, you know, the most common response is people just kind of scoff and laugh. A world without prisons? Well, what are you going to do about people who rob or who steal or who murder or this or that? And there are answers to these questions that I think people in the restorative justice movement who are working towards transformative justice are providing and will continue to develop. And those answers will continue to evolve as the movement grows and builds and is is challenged to respond um, to these difficult questions. And so um, far from being a pipe dream, I view it as absolutely essential Um, to, to, the, to the work of ending mass incarceration and um, the building of a more compassionate and just society. Mm. One of the things that um, has inspired me along those lines is, uh, you're probably familiar, Michelle, with The Interrupters yes. um, up in Chicago and the film that uh, basically follows the life of a few of The Interrupters, one of them, Amina, and uh, really the courage of going into the neighborhoods and really um, digging. Are you there? Hello? 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 Michelle, are you still with me? Oh, now I am. I'm sorry. Yeah, we had a brief technical pause there. Um, I was just wanting to to share with everyone the interrupters, the film, and um, be be sure to check that out. And uh, Michelle, are you okay with one more question from the council today? Uh, I know sure. we're getting close to closing, but we we had such a an outpouring of enthusiasm here. I'd like to to field one more. Um, Amy, welcome. You're live. Hi. Um, thank you for your work, Michelle. Um, I um, have been reading, uh, you know, a lot of materials on restorative justice, and most of it has been um, by white academics. And a lot of the framing of 
even the problems that restorative justice, like they'll say crime is, is caused by disconnection. And when I started reading your work, I thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's not disconnection, it's policies. It's, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot more to it than disconnection. And I guess in um, relation to what you're saying of creating a, a grassroots movement, so let's, let's not reform, let's transform, right? Let's create an, another model, um, which is going to require, I, I think you're right, it's going to require people working together. And so... I guess some of my question is about leadership and language. Um, I'm thinking about Spider Woman. I'm thinking about how do how do we create a movement where our leaders are not just academics? I, I don't have anything against academics. I'm a PhD myself, but I feel some concern that it's a very um, you know, and I'm white too, and so it's like how do we how do we create this movement where we we come um, where we intentionally build leadership and we build language which is more connected to the people who are actually experiencing the system how do we create a grassroots uh, how do we get from where we are now which is a very academically led restorative justice movement um, or is that happening are there, is there an intentional creation of a diverse leadership and a diverse type of language around restorative justice? Well, you know, that's a, I am not as involved in the restorative justice movement as I could be. Um, And so, you know, I have done a lot of reading and attended um, gatherings and um, consulted with folks who, you know, really are working um, on building the restorative justice movement and establishing restorative justice programs in their communities, but that has not been the focus of of my work. So, kind of in answering asking the question, you know, how does that particular you know aspect of the work, you know, reach a broader population? I'm probably not the best person to answer that question, but. I do know that even within kind of the academic community, there's a little bit of a split between those who think of themselves as kind of firmly in the restorative justice camp and those who kind of view themselves as more interested in transformative justice. And um, Mm -hmm. transformative justice, you know, as I understand it, is defined, you know, as having, you know, the same goals um, as restorative justice to a large extent, but also looking more broadly at transforming communities, transforming our society, and viewing conflict as less a dispute between individuals um, and kind of more a reflection of the structure of a community or society as a whole. Um, And so transformative justice is kind of really looking at kind of both, resolving a dispute between individuals, resolving conflict and harm that has been caused between individuals, and also looking to transform um, kind of the structure of communities so that those types of conflicts or harm um, do not emerge, um, you know, as frequently or in the same way. Um, and so, you know, I may not be describing this accurately again, so <laughs> this, I'm, it's not the work that I'm most steeped in, so I apologize if I'm getting it wrong in some way. No. But I think that, um, I think that there's, you know, lessons from kind of both framings that are very important and that can be um, applied at a grassroots level. In my own work, 
you know, I have to say that I have been so encouraged to see um, people at a grassroots level, formerly incarcerated folks, people behind bars, really taking up, um, you know, my book and the work that I've shared and using it in their mm-hmm. own ways, um, finding ways to make it work in their work. And I think that a lot more can be done um, to bridge the, you know, gaping hole between, or the vast gulf between academics and those folks who are kind of living this stuff in the real world um, than has been done. And a big part of it is actually just going and meeting with folks and being willing to work with them, not simply teach them, but work with them in a meaningful way and ask, how can I support you in the work that you are doing? Um, as opposed to simply asking, how can you help me <laughs> with the work that I am trying to do? And um, I hope um, that you know, as the movement grows, both the restorative justice movement and the movement and mass incarceration, that you know, people who are academics, as well as people who are artists, as well as people who are okay. you know, policy advocates, people who are grassroots organizers, all find their role and their voice in the movement and see each other as partners um, and that those who are most impacted um, really are given the space to provide, you know, real leadership. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Michelle. Thank you. thank you so much for for that. And I, I think that that really actually sums up um, the the power of what's emerging right under our noses right now in in our times and. Um, that we're recognizing that we each have a role to play in this movement. And um, it is very promising to look out there. I was just at a restorative justice summit in Denver uh, here in Colorado, and we have a lot happening that are work, you know, working models happening even um, with communities bridging with police departments and with the system itself. And um, uh, the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding with Heart Phoenix, again, the board president of the Peace Alliance, um, they have something of a very deep working model in the juvenile system. Um, so there, there's so many places that, and a lot of people that are on this call today are doing incredible work on the ground. Um, and interestingly, the next couple of, of people that this series is going to be talking with are academics, including um, Mikhail Lubinsky from the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign and a couple others. Tomorrow we'll be talking with Michael Nagler from the Meta Center for Nonviolence, who also was a professor at UC Berkeley um, Peace Studies. And so there's there's something in it for everyone. And um, I love, again, Michelle, how you were speaking to the importance of bringing, um, bringing a national network together. And I feel like that's in the works. So, um, it's obviously we're running a little bit over time here. I just want to acknowledge again the importance of your work, Michelle, and your heart. Um, and I would like to encourage everyone, if you haven't already, go pick up a copy of the new Jim Crow. Um, it's available on Amazon. You can also buy it through the website, which is the newjimcrow.com. There's also a tab called Take Action. And um, just in closing, Michelle, could you say just a little bit more about um, the Take Action tab and also the study guides? 
Yeah, well, you know, the Take Action tab is actually a work in progress. Um, you know, okay. I'm hoping to um, develop, you know, much more in terms of support and resources for people who want to take action. I get really a high volume of emails from people who say, I want to get involved. I don't even know where to begin in my community. You know, I live in Wyoming. I live in New Mexico. I live in New York or Detroit or wherever. How do I get started? You know, how do I get involved? And, you know, ideally there would be some kind of national network that would exist where people could just email the national network and the national network would say, here's how you can get involved in your local community. But that doesn't exist yet. And for so many people, they don't really know how to get involved. So what is listed there are a number of organizations and groups that are doing amazing work. Um, that you know are kind of a starting place for people to begin thinking about how they might be able to get involved in their local community or places that they can reach out to um, um, to get ideas, advice, um, thoughts about how to connect to the movement. I also encourage people to think about holding study groups, study circles um, about mass incarceration and the harm caused, and study guides for my book that are based around my book have been created um, by the Samuel Proctor Conference, which comes from kind of a black Christian perspective, as well as there's um, study guides that have been created by the Campaign to End New Jim Crow Grassroots Organization in New York and some others. And so, you know, if you're interested in study guides, um, you know, the Unitarian Universalists have created a study guide based on the book. There's a number of different versions of study guides that are available, um, you know, as a way of getting people to at least sit down and have a conversation about these issues before deciding how best to take action or where they might fit in. Well, and just in closing, on behalf of, of the, the Peace Alliance, again, this is uh, Board Member Molly Rowan Leach, your host, uh, with a heartfelt thanks to all of you coming in from around the world today to share with Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow. And please join me tomorrow as we host um, Michael Nagler of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. That's at 5 p.m. Pacific. Again, 5 p.m. Pacific tomorrow with Michael Nagler from the Meta Center for Nonviolence. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so, so much. I really enjoyed having the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you, Michelle.